0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 15 and 18 through 24 and then 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 19. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good for this is the will of God. that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then from chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Thank you, Susan. So all this summer I've been laboring to show you Uh, that Christianity, according to the Bible, is not an escape from a hard life. It's actually the occasion for a hard life. And so we've entitled this series, Fightings Without and Fears Within, because there are pressures that we experience externally. Uh, And then added to that are the storms that often begin to erupt inside of us in fear and anxiety and so forth. And one of the Fightings Without that we have to learn how to deal with Uh, Undeniably, and even more so uh, in light of some of the things that have happened in our culture just recently, one of those findings without is the hostility of the world. And so you read uh, in a number of different places. For example, in Matthew 10, where Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for their sake. For my sake, bear witness before them of me, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. For disciples not above his teacher, he goes on to say. And then again, he says later in John five fifteen, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, referring back to Matthew 10, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, he says. So Jesus' ministry, we're told, and we see in the Gospels, ended at a cross, not a throne. He was reviled as a criminal, not hailed as a king. And so discipleship is not a journey to a different destination. If it meant a cross for him, what those scriptures mean is that it's going to mean a cross for us too because a disciple is not above his teacher. And so this is why Paul says in 2 Timothy, which Jonathan already read for us, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so I want to talk about this. Now, it's strange, I admit, that we would use the day after the 4th of July to do this. You might argue, I knew it was going to be a tough subject and I knew there would be fewer people here today, so it's a great day to do stuff, hard sermons. Uh, But even as we do, we don't want to in any way minimize uh, the things that we have to be grateful for in our culture, the sacrifices that have been made, the kids that have come out of this church that are serving in the military or have gone to the military academies. uh, We don't want to in any way put a damper on the firework displays last night. We merely want to say... Uh, that given the trajectory of things in our culture, this is something we probably ought to talk about. And instead of doing what I've only heard people doing, and that is pastors taking to pulpits and railing against governments that don't agree with us, I thought instead it would be good for us to say, you know, what should our response be? What does it mean for us as, as Peter says, a lovely little phrase, those of us who obey the gospel of God? What does it look like for us to live in days like this? Even though it's a little strange to do it the day after the 4th of July, I think uh, it's an important thing for us to talk about. And so I want to do that this morning. And we're going to talk about this issue of persecution, which is just the Bible's word for the hostility of the world or the hostility of the world's system against the faith that we profess. And I want you to see three things. And all of these things are so vitally important for us to be faithful and to live faithfully uh, in these times. And the first is it's important to know that the Bible says that we absolutely will suffer persecution. Secondly, though, it's important also to know, it's important why we suffer that persecution. And then the last thing is, is it's also thirdly important how we suffer persecution or what our response to it is. And so that we will suffer it, but the reason why and really the how that we do it are all really important and they're all here and this hopefully will drive us to the gospel and we'll end there. Now let me make one one caveat before I get going and that is that if you're here and you're not a Christian this is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do in the sense that I really am going to talk to Christian people mostly in the room. If you're here and you're not a Christian though it's a great opportunity for you to get a little more insight into what it is that we really believe and how we believe it ought to lead us to live our lives. Okay so let's talk together this morning about this beginning just first with that we will suffer persecution. It's important for us to note from these scriptures that we will suffer persecution. It's promised here, 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who live or desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, a brief glance at the history of Christianity will show you that this is proven true. Uh, Over and over again, as Christianity expanded throughout the centuries and made inroads into all the different cultures of the world... One of two things happened every single time. Either the movement was seen as a threat by the power structures of the society, and so Christians remained a persecuted minority in that culture, or, and more often what happened is, is the movement, as it came into a new social setting, it gained influence and more and more converts, and thus influence, and what, what eventually was even maybe adopted as the official religion of the people, and so there's a certain pattern that you notice that's really, really fascinating uh, as you study church history, that wherever the, the church gained this the second option that I mentioned, whenever the church gained political and social acceptance that ended persecution, it often, in the process, lost its revolutionary message and ethic in the, you know, in the process. So it gained the state's um, affirmation, but it lost its revolutionary message and ethic in the process typically. So either the church remains a persecuted minority on the fringe of society or it becomes a social, political institution within society that has a certain amount of clout and power, but it no longer is distinctively Christian. So either, this is really, this is the argument I'm making, either the church is persecuted by the state or it eventually gains the favor of the state and it becomes like the state and ceases to be the church. So look again at First Timothy, uh, or excuse me, Second Timothy, that verse it says, "All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." It's the godliness Peter, Peter, or, um, Paul says, that leads to persecution. And therefore, if there isn't persecution, it may be because there's no godliness. If the world doesn't hate us as it hated him, it may be it's because we bear more resemblance to the world than we do to him. Now, very quickly, before we get too far into this this morning, I want to say something uh, that, that uh, should, we, should, we should be really careful to take uh, into consideration this morning. In the events of the past week and a half, and I don't really want to comment too much on that, and if you look at the discussion questions, I just if you're having a community group this afternoon... I really encourage you just to refrain from going there because I've not found conversations about Supreme Court rulings to be very helpful or very effective. So let's kind of skirt the topic but discuss it in one way. And I I, I just want to say this. I want to say um, I I want us to be really, really careful to take the events of the past ten days and to begin to label them as persecution. Ross Douthat, who writes for the New York Times, wrote an article back in 2014, March, of that year, he called on persecution, and here's what he said Um, in describing our surrender in the culture wars. uh, He says, I'm going to quote him, he says, being marginalized, being sued, losing tax exempt status, this will be uncomfortable for sure, but we should keep perspective and remember our sins, and nobody should call it persecution. Now, I just finished his book. He wrote a great book called Bad Religion. So I may be suffering from a little bit of fanboy syndrome with him at the moment. But I want to say that I completely agree with what he's saying. He's not an evangelical. I get it. But the perspective he was trying to bring in the article is important. And it's just this. When Coptic Christians are being rounded up and taken to beaches and put on their knees and beheaded simultaneously unless they recant their faith, that's persecution. Right When angry mobs loiter in the night and begin to go through cities and burn churches and slaughter entire villages like has been happening in Nigeria and India for a long, long time, that's persecution. And we're... Let's be completely frank, we're nowhere near those sorts of things happening to Christians in America. The Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage may open the door for religious persecution uh, in some form at some point down the road. We're not yet sure what the fallout will be, but here, listen, but being disadvantaged and being persecuted are two completely different things. And it's becoming harder. It's becoming less advantageous to be a Christian in American culture. And I assume that we will continue on that trajectory. But, but the question is, is that a bad thing? And I really think the answer is yes, of course it's a bad thing. And no, if, no, it's not a bad thing. Yes, of course it's a bad thing. It'll mean that America will increasingly become unfriendly to Christianity. We will be the minority, and that will be different. And it will mean that we will continue to pass legislation that will not lead to the flourishing of people in our society. Of course those are bad. that's a bad thing. But no, it's not entirely a bad thing, because what will go away? is not Christianity, but what has all this time passed is Christianity, but really isn't. Because you see, in that, again, I hate to go, earlier, 2 Timothy 3, Paul talks about a kind of Christianity that has an appearance of godliness, but no power, is what he says. There's an appearance of godliness, but it's not real godliness, because there's no Power in it. So, Christianity's power, Paul says, is in its godliness, not in its political position. You hear that? Our power is in our godly witness before the world, not whatever political position we occupy in the culture. We need a Christianity with a countercultural, powerful godliness. And in the future, you'll have to be committed to that kind of godliness, which may lead to persecution. Or you'll have to walk away. There really will be no more mushy middle. Ray Ortland, who's a pastor in Nashville, put it this way on Twitter this week. I thought it was great. He said, Bible Belt semi-Christianity is gone as a place to hide. And that's a good thing. But okay, before we move on, this brings up a little bit, a few larger questions about the nature of our relationship to the state that I think we should talk about. Our text, let's get to First Peter now. The text says in 1 Peter 2.13, Be subject to the Lord's sake for every human, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or supreme or to governors, as sent by him for this is the will of God. And then to make sure that we can get this on a personal level, Peter goes on to say, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And this is my favorite phrase. Not only, this is uh, 2 uh, verses 18 and 19, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In other words, he says the beautiful thing that Christians can do is when they face this kind of hostility, they can choose to be sad instead of be angry. And that's beautiful. And the reason we can, can, can expect to experience persecution is because the authorities that we're called by God to be in subjection to are often corrupt and unjust. But here's the thing, according to Peter, that doesn't change our posture. When we remain subject to unjust masters who use their power to do us harm, we will suffer unjustly. We will have to endure sorrows. But, but the Bible says that's God's will for us. So what? Do we not fight back? I mean, are you saying I shouldn't take the Facebook and begin to rail? I'm saying I don't know the answers. I'm just trying to help us make sense of this text, as hard as it is, and the teaching is that it is our duty to remain subject to human institutions and governments. Look at the phrase, as sent by God. And then whatever your conscience allows for. For me, this means to embrace being marginalized as God's will for us in this moment and to get ready for what might or might not come next. It is a gracious thing, the text says which means it's a supernatural thing. It defies human logic. It, can, it cannot be explained, it can only be explained by God at work and his people. And that's the kind of response our culture needs to see from us. See, the most powerful witness that we could give our, our, our culture is to lose the culture war and not freak out because it's a war we shouldn't have been fighting in the first place. See, disenfranchised and on the periphery of society is the place where the church has always done its best work. What a great opportunity, right? So as I prepared for this morning, I anticipated this visceral reaction that many of us, including myself, would have at my suggesting this. So before you go too far into formulating your objections to all that I'm saying, I just ask you sit with the text. Deal with it. And consider if this might be true. My, my observation has been over the last few days that there's a lot of epi-emotion from Christians over these issues. My Facebook timeline would suggest this, okay? Epi anger and epi anxiety and epi panic. And Tim Keller and David Pallison, who I greatly love and admire, have taught me that where you find this kind of epi emotion, it usually is an indication of idolatry. So could it be, just think, could it be that the panic and the fear that we feel is because one of our idols is being taken away from us? Nationalism is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's more likely a work of the flesh, an idol we need to repent of. And if we're not being persecuted when the Bible says it should be happening, it's the first place we ought to look for a reason why. So it's important to know that we will suffer persecution, that it's our calling. It's what the Lord has promised us. It's also important to know why. The reason why is important. And so I, I want you to come to the second point. And I've, I've already said some about this, but I have in mind the differentiation that Peter makes. It's really great. Look at First, uh, first Peter 2.20, for example. He says, what credit is it if when you sin and are are beaten for it, you endure? That's no big deal, in other words. But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let me kind of, let me me summarize that for you. Peter's saying you can suffer because you're a jerk. Right? Or you can suffer because you're a Christian. And there's a big difference. Peter returns to this theme later in his letter. He says, down in Peter... 4, uh, 15 and 16, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And this is where I got the sermon title this morning, this phrase. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In other words, there are lots of reasons why people might hate you. (laughs) It might be because you've wronged them. It might be because you're just not very nice. It might, mean, it might mean that you've stuck your nose in where it doesn't belong. But suffering as a Christian is when people hate you because you do good. And the example of this, of course, is Jesus who was not crucified because he was an enemy of the state, as the Jews claimed, or because he was a blasphemer, as they secretly thought, there was no evidence put forth to support any of their claims, which means that at the end of the day, Jesus was killed because he was good. And let me give you two reasons why. Why is it? How how can that be? That that would be our response to goodness Two reasons, and both of them are from John's gospel. And the reason that we can expect to suffer because, like him, we do good, two reasons. The first is that the world is desperately broken. I mean, the world is desperately broken. From John 3, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So the world, we're told there, loves the darkness and hates the light. You know, do you get, the world loves the cruel, oppressive rule of evil and hates the kingdom of Jesus. The world is broken. And because it's broken, because it's lost and in darkness, what happens is, is it judges evil as good. And if evil is judged to be good, then of course good must be judged as evil. And if this is what happens in the darkness, isn't it? You stay in the darkness long enough, you get disoriented. You can't tell up from down. You can't tell right from wrong. And this is what's happened in the world. Jesus' mission, we're told in John 3, was to love, not to condemn. That's the teaching. But here's the thing. God's love is received by those in the darkest condemnation. And the kind of action that ultimately condemns is the very thing we now call love. (laughs) Do you see how upside down this is? The world's broken. It's just desperately broken. But there's a second reason. The second reason that we, that's important why we would experience hostility is that we're different. That we're different. If you're a Christian, it means you're different. From John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It doesn't say they hate you because you're a conservative. Are we hated because we're not of the world? Or are we hated because we're on the wrong side of the political spectrum? See, it's it's important to answer that question. It has to be more than just a difference of political ideology. He says they hate you because you're not of the world. And here's the problem. Both political conservatism and political liberalism are both movements that are of the world. It's important that we suffer as Christians because we're different not because we're on the losing team. And so I really think that a lot of our engagement should be, if Jesus is the example that we're to follow according to Peter, then when Jesus stood before Pilate, my favorite thing that he did before Pilate, is Pilate's trying to get him to answer all these questions. The only thing Jesus will say is, my kingdom is not of this world. My king, I'm not fighting the same battles that you're fighting. This is really not about the things that you want to make it about. My kingdom is not of this world. And then he goes on to say, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. He's just completely on a different plane. So I keep hearing people, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on Facebook probably too much, to be honest with you. But I keep seeing people say, what's happening to our country? What's happening to our country? And the answer, of course, is that it's not our country. It never was. We are not of this world. We are those who are longing for a better country, according to Hebrews. So to suffer as a Christian is to suffer because you're different. And the difference that, that is exhibited in your life actually shames and condemns the world. And this is what creates the hostility. The darkness hates the light, Jesus says. Why? Because their own works are evil, he goes on to say, and they're afraid the light will expose them, and so they want it snuffed out. And this is very helpful. In Matthew 5, the church's godliness is, is described as the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Just think about those metaphors for a minute. The godliness of the church is salt in the world's wounds. You've heard of the expression, right? You've probably had the experience of having a cut on your finger and you don't know the cut is there until you go through the McDonald's drive-thru and you plunge your hands in the french fries for the first time. See, everybody's done that, right? You're like, ah, there's a cut there. I know because all of the sodium that is on those french fries is now digging into my fingers and it hurts, but you don't stop because it's so good. You just like go for it, Right? It's actually so painful that it's been used as a torture technique to just pour salt in, in deep, gaping wounds. Use the metaphor as light. Have you ever been in a pitch-dark room? Maybe you're in a fraternity and they did this to you or something. You know, For hours and hours, you're blindfolded in a pitch-dark room and then you step outside into the blinding sun, right? It's, oh, it's terrible. It hurts. So what is this experience? D.A. Carson says... Uh, in his commentary on John, that it's actually shame that those in darkness hate the light because they're shamed. That's the way he translates it. Now, I, I you're going to think this is funny, but it really is. It's uh, you need to pray for me in this. But home improvement projects in our house are treacherous territory, uh, and because it's mainly because I'm not very handy. Okay, I'm not, I'm not handy at all, really, and um and I'm really full of shame about it because I'm a man, right? And men are supposed to know how to find studs in the walls that secure things they're hanging instead of them ripping out of the drywall after two days. And, um, and so, um, I, you know, and how to fix a toilet. And Ashley's the toilet fixer, our, and I just, I really, I can't. So... Um, <laughs> it's terrible. So when I'm forced to take a Saturday morning to make a trip to Lowe's for whatever, I've noticed, uh, this is what happens in my family, when it's kind of on the agenda for the day that there's home improvement stuff that has to go on, Ashley and the kids kind of keep their distance. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Uh, and it's because it makes me really grumpy. Uh, and it, it makes me really, really grumpy. And it's not because I don't enjoy fixing stuff. It's just that I don't know how to do it, and that makes me feel bad about myself. And when I feel bad about myself, I'm mean. Right? Anybody else? So when I feel guilty, when I feel guilty, when I'm dealing with shame, when I feel guilty, the people around me experiencing, experience my feeling guilty as hostility. I'm not angry at Ashley, right? Though it feels like it to her. How dare she make any suggestion about what I'm doing? You know, I'm, I'm angry that I don't know how to do what needs to be done. I'm angry at my own brokenness. I'm angry because I'm ashamed. And no matter how hard our culture labors to redefine evil as good and to vilify good as evil, the Bible says that built into every one of us is a moral compass that won't let us do that. We know the good that we should be doing, so when we see somebody else doing the good that we should be doing, it makes us feel shame. And shame expresses itself in hostility. So if the world hates us, Let's make sure it's for the right reasons. Like the emperor, emperor Julian, the, great, uh, the Roman emperor Julian, who hated the early Christians, who he called impious Galileans, and his reason was because they support not only their poor but ours as well. He felt shame. So it's important to know that we will suffer persecution. It's also important to why we suffer it, that we do it for the right reason. And the last thing, it's important how, in what manner we suffer persecution. And, and this, point, this passage points us to the example of Jesus, ultimately. So I want to finish there with the how. And you see it in 1 Peter 2, <clears throat> 22, for example, where Peter writes, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then it goes on to say that he did not revile in return. He, go, he begins to describe uh, what, what, what you know, the suffering of Jesus looked like. He didn't revile in return. He didn't threaten. Uh, if you look at the footnotes of your Bible, it probably refers you to Isaiah fifty three seven because scholars are fairly certain that Peter is reflecting here as he begins to go into all this on Isaiah fifty three. And here's what Isaiah fifty three says, describing uh, the Son of Man, that he was or the, the the servant of the Lord, that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb. Led to slaughter like a sheep before his shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. Twice he opened not his mouth. And so the metaphor, without much comment on it, is helpful. In facing persecution, Jesus was a sheep. He was meek and he was quiet. That's important for us because in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus looks out at his, at his um, disciples and he says, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Which means whatever our posture or our response to persecution might be, it should be sheepish. Meekness and quietness should characterize us too. And Peter's instructions move us more and more towards vulnerability and powerlessness, towards sheepishness, in other words. And that is why they're so hard for us to swallow. Don't fight back. Don't make threats. Jesus goes so far in the Sermon on the Mount. I was just struck by this verse this week. Matthew 5.39, if you don't believe me and you want to look it up later, Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. Now just stop and think about that for a minute. Do not resist an evil person. All who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people, impostors, go on. From bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, he says... Evil is going to go on, getting worse and worse. And what are we to do? What, what, we're told that what Jesus did. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When, suffered, when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. In almost identical language, Peter tells us how we should respond down in verses, uh, verse 19 of chapter 4, right at the very bottom of your scripture passage that I printed for you. Uh, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator While doing good. And so here are our marching orders. And let me just finish with this. We are to trust God. And to do good. Trust God. And trust yourself to him. Hope in him. Rely on him. Look to him for comfort and strength. If we become rattled. When the political powers turn against us. It reveals that we have put too much hope in them. That God's control over our lives, God's care for us is not at all one iota, one little bit dependent upon who is in control of the White House or the Congress. There's a judge who judges justly. It may not be the Supreme Court judges, and that's not okay. But there's another judge, and he will judge in righteousness. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So, the scripture would say, take a breath. We're in God's hands. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not distress, nor persecution, nor danger, nor even death. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So, don't panic. Do good. Right? This is where the supernatural part of Christianity is seen. If you're not a Christian, This is the power Christianity promises. Listen to what the scripture calls us to. Don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. If anyone would sue you for your tunic, give him your cloak also. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, never avenge yourself. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Less talk, less social media outrage, more of that. And if you want, if you want I'll tell you the best example, uh, the, those that have led us the best, the best example that I can think of in, in the, the, the last short little bit is the families in Charleston, South Carolina, who stood in a courtroom and said to the man who killed the people they loved... We forgive you. That's the kind of thing Christians do. You see, as Christians, we treat those who hate us this way, not only because it is what Jesus did, but even more so, it is how we were treated by God in our hatred of him. Romans 5 says that when we were God's enemies, he loved us. Jesus died for us, not because we were his friends. He died for us, his enemies, to make us his friends. And so we suffer abuse from others, trusting God and doing good to them in the process because Jesus suffered for us. Do you see that little phrase, First Peter 2, Christ suffered for you. He had every right when he came against our rebellion and hostility to judge us, but he didn't. He did not repay our evil with what would have been justice. He chose instead to bear our sins in his body in order to overcome our evil By his good. And think about all of the good. That his sacrifice has accomplished for us. Our sins are forgiven. Our inheritance in heaven. Is secured. We have the spirit. Who is now busy healing our brokenness. And making us new. Wow right wow. Do you see his readiness to do us good. Is the very beat of his heart. So now. Face every circumstance in your life. As according to Peter. Sent by him. Whatever affliction or hardship we might have to face, it has been sent by him. By who? By the one who loves us all the way to death. Beloved, we're in good hands. We can trust him. And we can make it our business to do good. And so let's pray that he could help us to do that. Can we pray together? Father, as we gather around your table now, we do pray that you would use the rest of this service to do just that in us. To form us and shape us as your people. With a powerful countercultural godliness that is summed up in love, that we would be a people of love. Love and concern and acceptance and brutal honesty all at the same time, that we would be a people of love. And yet we know how desperate, uh, desperately we fail and we struggle, and in our own sin and rebellion and brokenness, we mess it up all the time. And so we thank you for the promise not only that has come to us uh, of the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ by his death, but in the power of his resurrection and of the sending of the Holy Spirit, that you are busy making all things new, and that includes us. And so as we come to this table this morning, we celebrate that as well. And we pray that you come and meet with us here as you promised to do, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could sum everything up that uh, Peter has to say to us, I think it would be that whatever the cultural moment we find ourselves in, the issue is really not whatever is happening out there. The issue is the kind of people that we are becoming by the power of the Spirit in our lives. That we be a people who are obeying the gospel of God from the heart. Because that's the gift we have to offer our our culture, isn't it? This godliness uh, that the church is, is not a mere showing back to the world its own reflection. The church should be a window through which the world can see a whole other way of living. That's the calling that's before us. And it's the promise of God's Spirit to go with us. Uh, It's the promise of His presence. It's the promise of His power and of His provision to give us all that we need for godliness. That's what the Scripture says. And so receive this benediction and know that He sends us out uh, to be ministers of reconciliation, uh, light and salt, Before a dark and decaying world. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.